and we're recording. So tonight's guest is TC Fuller. TC, thank you so much for doing me the honor. Thank you. The privilege is all mine, Memphis, really. Thank you very much for inviting me. So TC is, um, I met him through a couple of, well, I haven't met him yet. (laughs) I just haven't met him in real life yet, but I feel like I've met him. I feel like I've known him for years because, you know, we have a lot of mutual friends and, you know, he, uh, he's done other podcasts as well. Like, uh, most notably Rich Brown of the American Warrior Society. And also he just really, one of the ring reasons why I wanted to bring him on is that he just recently released his latest book. It's called Painting Over Rust about his 20 years, his 20 year odyssey and the FBI. And I want to bring you on because you're just a cool dude. Man, TC, I'm so excited for tonight. It's going to be awesome. Me too, man. But thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited. I know you have a, a, a widening reach. I've watched uh, some of your podcasts in the past, as well as your ones you're doing with the other uh, notable instructors out there. And it's uh, it's really a privilege to be on here. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Oh, man, you flatter me, sir. You flatter me. <laughs> yeah. So so tell me about the book. What can, what can listeners and viewers and readers expect from this book? Well, I, I hope that they will at least see one guy's perspective on 20 years working for the federal government and specifically the FBI. I'm trying to give you a little bit of inside baseball, if you will, you know, a peek behind the curtain, because uh, my real effort is trying to just humanize it. You know, let's face it. How many FBI agents has the average person ever met? None. One. I had never met any until I became a criminology major at Fresno State way back in the day. Go Bulldogs. Um, and that was one of my instructors. He was an old retired agent who'd worked on uh, JFK assassination. It gives you an idea how long ago that was. Uh, but, you know, he was obviously long retired, but still. Um, but beyond that, I just, you know, I'd rarely met an FBI agent until I got into the organization. <clears throat> and uh, as a result, I think most people get their opinions on the FBI from the media. And it's, it's funny because you talk to people, especially in the sort of the, the circles you and I travel in, uh, very few people trust the media anymore. You know, they'll tell you how little trust they have in the media. But then when the media says, oh, the FBI is this, the FBI is that, they go, oh, it must be true. You know, especially if it's on their particular, you know, propaganda network, right? If they're a CNN person and CNN says it, or if they're a Fox News person, Fox says it, um, <clears throat> then they tend to believe. And so I was like, you know what, let's, let's at least see have a book out there from one guy who can tell you, look, this is what I saw. This is what happened to me. Um, I don't think I'm a particularly uh, much of an outlier in terms of the FBI. I don't think I was a particularly astounding agent. I don't think I was a particularly terrible agent. You know, I had my highs and my lows like anybody else. I'm a regular guy. Uh, I just happened to have a pretty neat job for 20 years. And so I wrote the book in the hopes that that would give people a better, more grounded, understanding that wasn't filtered first through you know a, a news network or a political reality so that's that's the hope i'm i'm hoping that the book does that it, it's it's racking up some awards out there which really surprises me um you know it's up it's being looked at by the the pulitzer community right now for memoirs it's uh, made some long lists and short lists so uh you know hopefully next year knock wood will be a, a, a validating year for me in terms of rewards and, and awards so I'm hopeful that the book is entertaining for the, the, the masses as a result. 
Yeah, I'm hoping. I'm I'm certain. I'm certain this book is going to be incredibly entertaining because I know the guy that wrote it. And then also, um, I think this book is going to be important uh, because uh, in a lot of other professions, um, we know people that are doctors. We know people that are lawyers. Um, like you said, not a whole lot of people know FBI agents. So at least for me and my family, most of what we know about the FBI is what we hear secondhand from local law enforcement. And unfortunately, a lot of people, their idea of the FBI comes from movie, movies and television. So like, how accurate is that going to be? <laughs> you know, the, do you remember the the show, The West Wing? It was on, yeah. you know, what, 15, 20 years ago. They did an episode one time that started out with a banner across the bottom that said, FBI, Burlington, Vermont. And that was my office for a decade. I was in that office and it started out with this and you can probably find it on YouTube somewhere on the interwebs, <clears throat> big, you know, cut glass symbol, you know, the FBI seal, like I have on my lapel and, and you kind of panned in. It was typical. Everyone's in shirt sleeves with their guns worn poorly, you know, so you can see them on camera, but it's not where you and I would ever consider wearing a firearm. Uh, it's, a, you know, very busy and there's, you know, it's a, age diverse, gender diverse, racially diverse crowd. And they're, you know, they're moving around, they're doing stuff. And I'm like, wow, I don't know where that is, but I want to work there because the office <laughs> I work in is six middle-aged white dudes, you know, <laughs> in a cramped office space, you know, uh, two floors above the federal court at the top of church street in Burlington, Vermont. And uh, it doesn't look anything like that, but boy, that looks cool. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're saying in terms of the media tells us what FBI agents are. It is what it yeah. is. Yeah. And then also, um, you know, my own experience from working in government, not just from, you know, I uh, so I worked in I was I served the United States Marine Corps for nine years. And then also I got out and I actually did some contracting work for the IRS, believe it or not. So, you know, um, so all in all, officially, I've worked for the U.S. government for 10 years. They even sent me a little placard. It was nice. Certificate says 10 years of government service. Yeah. <laughs> and it's in a folder somewhere. I didn't really. It's, uh, I too too. I, it's around here someplace. Yeah. I was too ashamed to hang it up. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so uh, most people, their idea of government is not favorable. You know, um, yeah. We usually we usually enjoy the company of folks that just so happen to work in government. Um, like I know guys that are cops, I know guys that are agents, and they're awesome people. But as a whole, when you think about government agencies like the FBI, the NSA, it's not favorable. Um, mm. But you know, I I feel the same way. I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, but it's it's true of so many things that people do. Right? Individuals can be great. People in groups are you know, scared, ignorant, dangerous herd animals, right? <laughs> you know, pick a group, you know? Um, and sadly, the FBI is representative of the nation as a whole in that regard. I mean, I think they do great stuff, but too often, you know, former colleagues of mine will stand up and, and the, the FBI is the greatest thing ever, and that's the hill they're going to die on. And <clears throat> I, I just don't think if you can't name a problem, you can't solve a problem. And the the idea that you're going to have a 30,000 person organization that is faultless is ridiculous, particularly when it's a government agency. It's just, it's just silly. So I, my experience is the same as yours. I met a lot of really great people. 
in, in government service. And every now and then you meet a jerk. And sadly that jerk for some people can come to represent the entire organization. Right. I mean, you meet one fat Marine and then all your, all the Marines are not as in shape as the movies would tell you that were right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just <clears throat> the way that people kind of seem to work. Um, yeah. For worse. That's the way we are. Yeah. So how long have you been working on this book? How long have you been working on painting over rust? When I, well, it's funny. I came up with the title probably a year into my, uh, my career. And when I sat down to actually work on the book, it was probably, I want to say a, a year, year and a half, but you know, there's a big chunk of time in the middle there where I just, I put it down, didn't touch it. You know, I, I outlined it fairly quickly. I got up to around 30,000 words fairly quickly. And then there was probably six, eight months where it just sat, you know, and then uh, I just decided, okay, I'm really going to knuckle down and get this done. And I, I aimed for a hundred thousand words. I thought, okay, if I get around a hundred thousand words, I should be in the ballpark. Cause what my approach was get the first crappy draft down on paper, then go back and make it a book. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually used Dan Brady, uh, our mutual friend quite a bit in that latter part of the process by just hammering him every day, every other day. Hey, I hit 32,000 words. Hey, I fit 54,000 words. Hey, I hit 55,000 words. <laughs> And, and to his credit, he encouraged me the whole time. He didn't just say, dude, shut up. You know, show me the baby, right? Don't tell me about the pregnancy. Just show me the baby. Uh, <laughs> he never said that. You know, he, he walked all the way through it and listened to my, my shenanigans the whole time. So, um, yeah, once I really started knuckling down, it was probably four months that, that it took me to really bang it out towards the end there. Um, and then, of course, since it's about the Bureau, as a former Bureau employee, I, I had to send it to the Bureau. So last, uh, I want to say last June, I sent it to the bureau. I have it written down here, the exact date. And they gave it back. They had to, you know, proof it and uh, approve that I wasn't giving away any sources or methods or anything classified or, you know, individuals' names or anything like that. They sent it back to me in March with no redactions. Said, yeah, it's good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Appreciate that. I just sat here on my thumbs for eight months, but okay. Uh, yeah. So it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that could be a chapter in and of itself. <laughs> you know, it ends up being part of the the, bat, the last chapter. I just, you know, I didn't want to, well, the first chapter I wrote about it was really bad. And, and I just, okay, that's got to go in the trash. That's got to go away. Um, and I'd done that previously in the book. I said, oh, that Memphis Beach, I worked for him. And he was such a... And I went, yeah, no, we're not going to talk about that at all. Because, um, you know, I didn't want it to read like some sort of, you know, angry hit piece. You know, I was mad at this guy from 18 years ago and I was still carrying that around in my back pocket. So what I did, in the, and you'll see when you finish the book, this is the last chapter I just kind of talk about, okay, and this is, this is the timeline. This is what happened. And you may draw your own conclusions from that. Um, just to illustrate that the bureau keeps on being a government edifice long after you've retired. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely relate to that. I still think about the Marine Corps sometimes. Like they're still, they still haven't changed in probably most of the ways that they really should, but <laughs> yeah, you, you talked about Rich Brown earlier. If you, uh, if you do an interview with him, I'm definitely going to watch that one because it's always funny to me watching two former Marines get together and just start going off because uh, it's never, never dull. The hardest part is like trying not to cuss too much. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did most of my time in the infantry. So uh, the F-bomb was a a major part of my vocabulary for years. (laughs) So uh, can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the stuff you did before the FBI? Oh, sure. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was born originally in California and that's, and I learned to shoot in California. That's, that's how old I am. Uh, you know, I used to uh, walk around my grandfather's farm up North of Sacramento and he had about 20 acres. And I used to wander around out there with a old Winchester 1912 corn cob 20 gauge. And it's in my gun safe now. Uh, <clears throat> and I, you know, if it walked, crawled or flew, I shot it. You know, <laughs> it just didn't matter. I was out there shooting everything. And, uh, you know, so I finished up uh, high school out there. I went to a Jesuit all-male boarding school, a prep school out in uh, San Jose, and then went off to UC Santa Cruz, did that for a year, had a great time, you know, chased girls, played volleyball, spent a lot of time on the beach, and then was invited to pursue my academic career elsewhere. So I moved down to Fresno State, got into Army ROTC, and never looked back. Did the National Guard thing while I was in college. Um, finished college, got a regular army commission in the infantry, went off to Fort Benning, Georgia for about a year of all the normal mandatory, you know, infantry training that, you know, you kind of get went from there. I was headed to the Berlin brigade and, uh, landed in, uh, at Rhine mine and they changed my orders and sent me to Mannheim. And then I, next thing I knew I was standing on a sand dune (laughs) looking at the Northern horizon on fire. So uh, I did the did the first wow. Gulf War as an infantry platoon leader, came back, finished up my time in the infantry, and then right towards the end, uh, they had a program going on at the time called Branch Detail. I have no idea if it still exists or not, but they basically draft you right out of whatever combat arm you were in and put you in some other arm. So they put me in the Ordnance Corps um, with zero input from me on that topic, <laughs> and I had very strong opinions on that topic. Uh, so I... Uh, I knew I was stuck and I said, you know, if I, if I have to turn wrenches for a living, I will get out of the army and I'll go do it for Walmart or UPS or somebody and and make more money and not get shot at by scud missiles and artillery. So before I was willing to jump, I applied to uh, special forces selection and I applied to explosive ordnance disposal. And I said, look, first one that offers me a job, I'm gone. I'm there because I can't, I can't just do maintenance reports for the rest of my career. I'll, I'll, you know, be smearing peanut butter on the end of my Glock. So, um, the EOD pulled out a chair first. I said, absolutely. Here I come. Uh, went over there, did the nine month Navy school explosive ordnance disposal because all four branches send people to the same EOD school. Did that. It was brutal. We had a higher failing rate there than we did at Ranger school. I mean, it was nuts how tough that school was. Wow. But I got through it. And so I was happy about that. I asked to go to Korea. They promptly said in a very military fashion, absolutely. How does the Sinai desert sound to you? <laughs> and so, uh, yes, sir. Roger out three bags full. Right. So I spent a year in the Sinai desert uh, of Egypt and took full advantage of the ability to travel around back then. Cause you could still do it. I don't know that you can now, but I was all over Egypt. I was you know, diving, scuba diving in the Red Sea. I was all over Israel, snuck into Syria. That was kind of fun. Snuck into Lebanon. That was less fun. 
<laughs> took a wrong turn, drove into the West Bank. That was really intense. Almost drove into Palestine one time. Uh, but the machine gun nests convinced me that perhaps I should turn back around and go the other way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, very entertaining. A lot of fun over there. I learned a lot, saw a lot, came back, um, got a second company command. I was very fortunate. I took over the EOD uh, company at Fort Bragg, in North Carolina, <clears throat> did that. And while I was there, I put in an application to the FBI uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, mostly my wife really wanted me to, you know, get out. And I was, my, my daughter, my only child at the time was five. I'd been gone for almost two years of her five. And, uh, you know, anybody with kids will tell you that, I mean, one that they, they grow and gone that fast. And two, I just didn't want to be a Lieutenant Colonel someday with a 16 year old daughter sleeping in the barracks. And I just didn't want to not know her. I wanted to be around. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll put in and we'll, they're not going to hire me, of course, because they hire grownups, you know, mature, responsible adults, <clears throat> not guys who like to go out into the desert and blow things up for fun. But uh, I kept passing the tests. And uh, next thing you know, I had an acceptance letter and a date to Quantico. And there I went. Got to Quantico, had a great time. Uh, you know, coming out of my second company command, all of a sudden I wasn't responsible for anybody but me. You know, all, I, all I had to do was get myself to chow. All I had to do is get myself to class. Hey, this is great. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of fun. I asked them to send me to San Francisco because I kind of wanted to go home. So they said, yeah, that'd be a great idea. How do you feel about Burlington, Vermont? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Roger that. Three bags full. I'm off to Burlington, Vermont. Um, so I went up there. And as soon as I hit the ground up there, I said, you know, I finally got time to pursue a hobby. I'd been into bicycling, mountain biking, road biking. Uh, I had taught karate. I, I paid my way through undergrad by teaching karate. And I thought, you know what would be fun? I think shooting would be a lot of fun. So this is 1998. I jumped right into IDPA in its initial stages. I think my IDPA number starts with an A. And it's four digits. I mean, it's. I don't have the Charter Life membership that Andy Bronca has. He's Charter Life number 13, <laughs> but I'm really close. Uh so anyhow, I got into IDPA. I think it was the only IDPA shooter in the state for a long time. I was the only master class shooter for seven or eight years uh, in the state. Had a great time, traveled all over New England, shot down at uh, Massachusetts, you know, the Smith & Wesson Academy a lot, shot over at Pioneer Sportsman in New Hampshire an awful lot. That's where I met Masa Yub, um, and he helped me get into writing. So I started out writing for gun magazines, and that's how I paid for my master's degree was writing for gun magazines. And, you know, I, I think it's the same story that, that you could tell that once I got into shooting, once I started competing, yeah, it was, it was hook, line, and sinker time. That was just became my thing. Um, in very short order, I was the gun guy in the office. You know, I'm sure you're the gun guy in your office. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in my office full of FBI agents, I was that guy. ATF used to take me on their, their search warrants because I could identify guns and talk about them and say, yeah, that's legal. That's not. And the ATF guys weren't gun guys, you know, it's no slide on them. They're federal investigators, but guns just, they were their tools. They weren't their thing. And so. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> and I got along with them. Great. I always tell people you should really be nice to, I used to tell the students at the FBI Academy, you gotta be nice to the ATF guys. Cause we all have one thing in common. We all applied to the FBI. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I did that for 10 years. 
had a great time. And I, I, I tease them a lot, but I have some really good friends, the ATF, the secret service, the DEA. I mean, we all, it was such a small group of us up there in that state that we all got along really well. Sometimes the bosses didn't get along, but that was because they were bosses. Um, so I did that for about, well, I guess I was in Vermont for 10 years. Then I moved down to Albany for about three while I was in in Vermont, I became an FBI firearms instructor, which is sort of a natural progression. Yeah. Um, then I went into uh, firearms. I became the chief firearms instructor for the whole Albany division, the FBI. And it just kind of went from there and blew up from there. So wow. it was a long-winded wow. way of answering your, what did you do before the FBI question? So, But I'm here for that. You know, I love those details. I love those stories. It's just kind of the spice of, you know, of, what we do with the podcast here you know if we kept it short and sweet it wouldn't be fun that's true (laughs) that's true (laughs) so but yeah wow man have you thought about like writing a book about your military career like before the bureau Uh, you know i i have i've thought about it the problem i'm running into now is that i've already got three other books outlined and i'm working on one now um so as i told you before we started broadcasting my i've I wrote a book while I was in the bureau. I've rewritten it, uh, re-edited it, recovered it. Uh, you know, cause my publisher went out of business and you went, when you, I don't know how much you know or want to know about writing, but since you opened that door, um, when you get a, a traditional publisher, they get a lot of control over the intellectual property rights and you know, you can't do a lot of editing. You can't change things. They get to pick the title. So once I gave them the manuscript, it kind of became their baby. And yeah, it's never perfect. And it wasn't in that case. So when they went out of business, my first book went out of print, but I regained control of the intellectual property rights. So I said, you know what? It's already done. Let's, let's polish it up. Let's uh, modernize it a little bit and uh, make it a little bit more readable and put it back out there. So that should be coming out in the next week or two. Uh, it's called uh, no safe alternative. And I'll, I'll let you know when it comes out, yeah. but I've also, got a book on my time as an interrogator in Guantanamo Bay in the works. Um, matter of fact, what are we at? We're, we're about 32,000 words into that right now. <clears throat> so that one will be shorter, but it'll probably still come out around 50. And I hope to have that one being looked at by FBI headquarters by end of summer, end of fall, maybe. And then behind that, I was, I also did time in Afghanistan with the FBI so I've got an outline for that book already written. And then I've got a couple of fiction books that are kind of outlined and sitting there. So yeah, time in my time in the bureau book took me a while time in the military, I think is at the tail end of that queue. And so we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, man, I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, are these going to be available in a uh, audio book as well? Or- you know, I really got to look in well, Yes, at some point they will. Uh, it, it surprised me when I first put painting over rust out, I got two big batches of feedback. One, when I initially put it out, people said there's no page numbers because I didn't care about page numbers. I didn't realize anybody cared about page numbers. <laughs> but apparently people feel pretty passionately about page numbers in their books, <laughs> judging by the influx of uh, constructive criticism I received on that issue. So quick, like a bunny rabbit, I made that editorial change and made sure there were page numbers. The other batch of input I've gotten is put it on audio. And I, I am of an age where audiobooks are kind of newfangled and weird. Uh, apparently I'm a bit of a, a, an anachronism. I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that regard. And 
so what I've run into now is uh, to do an audible book, it's going to be either a big chunk of money to pay somebody to do it, or it's going to be a big chunk of time for me to do it. And I've got to kind of figure out which one, which way I want to invest to move that forward, but I've got to do it. it. It's clear to me that that has to be done. So the short answer to your question is yes, eventually. <laughs> right on. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. So I think uh, for the books that I read, I want to say two thirds of them are audiobooks, and I could just work through them, you know, as I drive or as I work. And, you know, especially with a kid, it's yeah. just hard for me to sit down and, you know, right. Um, I can read kid, it. Right. I mean, you yeah. got a little kid and, and, you know, you're going to be up at two in the morning doing stuff where you just got to rock back and forth. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. But if you can plug a book into your ear, maybe you don't pass out on a little guy. <laughs> yeah. So um, some of these books I read to him, you know, I never thought I would read Verbo Judo by, you know, <laughs> Dr. George Thompson. I never thought I'd read that to like a two month old. <laughs> right. Right. No, he seemed to enjoy it. <laughs> and so, you know, that in between, you know, Dr. Seuss, it's <laughs> a lot of fun, um, fun stuff. Yeah. So um, a lot of my uh, listeners and viewers a lot of these guys have a uh, a background in competitive shooting. They shoot USPSA and IDPA, and so like one of the thing, one of the big things that we have in common is you know our background in IDPA. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about um, some of the some of the matches and some of the you know uh, some of the adventures that you've had there? Because I'm definitely interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I got into IDPA early on in its development. <clears throat> uh, and I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought, oh, it's been around forever. And of course, I'd been reading about uh, Robbie Lethem and, and you know, uh, Jerry the Burner Barnhart and some of the others for years, right? I'd been reading uh, Jeff Cooper's stuff. So I just sort of thought, oh, these have all been around forever. I didn't realize that IDPA had been founded in what, 96, 97, wherever it was. Yeah. And so when I did an examination of what was out there, what was available to me in Vermont, and what I wanted to do, uh, I landed on IDPA, you know, cause I mean, as you know, there's a bazillion shooting sports out there. You want to shoot pellet guns? Sure. You want to shoot pellet pistols? Sure. You want to shoot shotguns? You know, there's a million different things. So I, I landed on IDPA, especially in those early days, because it seemed like it had the most to do with what I might need a gun for professionally. I thought, oh, this will be a great way to entertain myself and train for work. USPSA was out there, but I frankly didn't have the money to jump into USPSA. They didn't have all of the, the categories that they have now. And so if you wanted to shoot USPSA, it was pretty much you were going single. You need a single action gun. You needed a race rig and you needed probably ought to have a race gun as well. So even then it was $2,500, $3,000 just to kind of get your toes in the water. And as a brand new baby agent, I didn't have that kind of cash. I certainly wasn't going to, you know, embezzle that out from under the wife without her seeing. So that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, but with IDPA, especially when I first started, I could shoot it with my Glock 22. You know, I could, I could afford ammo then because it wasn't prohibitively expensive. Um, I had friends that reloaded. They taught me how to reload. And so I really jumped into IDPA with both feet. <clears throat> I shot the first 10 Smith and Wesson Winter Nationals back when they were still called the Winter Nationals. I don't know what they're called now, but uh, 
yeah, I shot all of those. I shot regional matches all over New England. Andrew Bronca and I, you know, you know who I'm talking about with Andrew Bronca, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we've been friends also for 25 years. I've known him longer than I've known Dan Brady. Uh, he and I drove to the 2000 uh, IDPA Nationals down in Memphis from Albany. I drove down from Vermont to Albany. He drove over from Boston. We met in the parking lot at the Albany uh, FBI office, jumped in the car together, and then pounded down to Memphis or to uh, south of Memphis, right? The IDPA Nationals were shot down there near neck of the woods. I actually met Andrew at um, a winter national competition, the first one I shot, I think. Yeah, he, we were squatted together, of all things. So uh, I shot 2000, and I shot 2001, uh, which was at the end of September 2001, when right when the plane started flying again, you know, because you recall they were all grounded right on, two, on, on yeah. September 11th. Yeah. We were able to catch one of the very first flights out of Logan after they started flying again. And I was flying with him and a guy named Mike Briggs and we were all going to the nationals together. And I said, look, I had told them beforehand because I didn't have to go through the magnetometer that I would carry their firearms on me. So they didn't have to worry about shipping them down there. Cause the last thing you want to do is get to the national competition and have your gun lost in shipment. Right. That so sucks. I, yeah. <laughs> I, said, I, I will carry your guns on me because I can carry firearm on the plane. Well, after September 11th, I said, okay, the only thing different now is I want loaded magazines for each of those guns. Because if these Hajis show up again, I'm, has, I'm handing out firearms. Right? We're, not, we're not crashing into a wall without a, without a gunfight going on in this plane. Um, so, you know, we get there. I get through the security checkpoint real easily because I'm, you know, I'm badged and everything. It was the first time I'd ever seen people walking around with MP5s and M4s in a U.S. airport. And we're at Logan, right? So we're one of the flights originated. So they're not monkeying around at all. Well, I get through the magnetometer security checkpoint. And I'm sitting down. Well, they're coming through and they're getting their shoes pulled off and they're, you know, they're getting wanded and they're getting patted. And of course, everybody at the security checkpoint is now a fed, a lot of marshals, a lot of soldiers. And they all knew who I was because I had to badge my way through. So I'm just sitting there nearby. I'm carrying three guns on me and I'm just heckling the crap out of these two guys. Ah, give him a body cavity search. Hey, that guy over there, he's got knitting needles. He's going to knit an Afghan. You better get him. You know, I mean, it was just, just dad joke after dad joke after dad. <laughs> and they're both looking at me like, would you just shut the hell up? And the, all, the, all the security personnel are cracking up because you know, it was a very tense time, very tense time. Uh, so I shot a lot of those, those early matches, um, you know, again, regional state, couple of national matches you know i i I used to joke that i've I've been beaten by the best shooters in the country all over the country because you know once i got into the master class i'm shooting against all the pros so i'm like well i'm i may be last on the list but i am in the master class (laughs) i'm getting pummeled (laughs) by the back you know you got to be good to beat me Uh, but beat me you shall so I did that for a long time. And, you know, I also shot some USPSA just for additional trigger time. But of course that's a, that's a whole different animal. And if you really don't dedicate yourself to one or the other, you're, I think you'll, you'll have a harder time in the deeper end of the pool. Uh, so I, I tended to stick to IDPA. That was where my, much of my concentration was. And then once, you know, USPSA saw the writing on the wall, they said, well, maybe we should have a production division. That's a little bit more, you know, uh, diverse, more accepting of some of these uh, other areas that IDPA is stealing from us and they're taking 
revenue with them and we can't have that. So uh, yeah. that, and uh, like I said, I wrote for a lot of gun magazines back when they were print magazines, uh, paid for my master's degree, which was great. And, uh, and again, traveled all over the place, had a lot of fun, met a lot of people, trained with anybody I could get my paws on. Um, <clears throat> you know, so I, I shot up at the SIG Academy. I shot with AU, I shot with Ernie Langdon. I shot with Dave Savigny. I, you know, it's tough to keep up that lifestyle for decades on end. Some people can do it. Um, but, uh, I did it as long as I could and I had a great time doing it. Absolute blast. Met some of the greatest people you ever want to meet as, as you're doing now, you know, um, there's just a lot of really good people in the shooting community. And, uh, that's why I still kind of hang out and, and teach and, and still shoot the occasional competition to this day. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, some of the absolute best human beings, the best Americans that I've ever met. Um, I met them at matches. I met them in classes. I met them, you know, uh, just doing our thing. Um, I think it's just kind of unique. I think it's a unique dichotomy that, you know, when you talk to folks that aren't in this space, that, you know, there aren't security professionals or they aren't military or law enforcement veterans or they don't even carry. Um, and they think about guns is very easily equated with violence, you know, like guns and violence. In their minds, they kind of go hand in hand. And well, so right back to what you said earlier about the media dictating the way people think. Yeah. Yeah. So but then you actually meet these folks and they're amazing. Like I I remember one time. I had a gun actually go down on me and hey dude, you want to borrow my, you know, you want to mm -hmm. borrow my Wilson combat? What? <laughs> it's a $3,000 handgun. Like, yeah, I got ammo for it too. I see, I see your $800 gun has gone bad. Would you like my $3,000 gun? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I thought about it, you know, I really thought about it, but I was really afraid that that decision would cost me like three thousand dollars. <laughs> right, I'm, not, I'm no longer worried about down zero. I'm now worried about drop on my toe and kicked it across the range. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, forbid me if my wife ever caught wind of that. Jesus. So you did. I messed. <laughs> so I messed up. <laughs> I messed up with my marriage, TC. I messed up my marriage real bad. Um, uh oh. And um, yeah. So here's what happened. So I taught my wife how to shoot everything in the house. So now I can't do anything. You know, <laughs> I can't cheat. I can't spend money. I can't stay out late. You know? <laughs> yeah. And you can't sneak guns in the house. Cause she knows what she's looking at. She knows. And it's like, <laughs> Hey, what's that? You know, uh, the big blue box. Okay. All right. That's not like the little black boxes that, you know, that you already, <sighs> well, my, uh, my long suffering first wife finally decided to, to head out for, greener pastures and somehow or other I, I managed to convince another beautiful woman to marry me and she's a also an fbi special agent and a lawyer so i haven't won an argument in my house in over a decade um, but uh it, it's it's really really refreshing and and it's a, it's a no end to of a source of comfort for me that i'm playing off the same playbook as my partner um you know, we, we see the world through the same lens. We, we approach the world the same way. Her father is a retired agent. She's an agent. I'm a retired agent. Uh, so there's a lot of that kind of 
conversation. All of our chips and our heads line up is what I tell people. But uh, <laughs> it's really nice. Like one time we had a, uh, we heard a noise in the house as you do. Right. And every now and then one of those noises just sounds like that might be somebody in the kitchen. Yeah. All of our kids are accounted for. So it shouldn't be anybody. And the dog's right there on our bed. So we decide, okay, we're going to take a look. Well, I end up with a long gun. She ends up with a handgun. We search the place. All is right with the world. The raccoon hit the window or something to that effect. And afterwards we're talking about it. And she looks at me in all earnestness and says, why did you get the long gun? And I'm like, mm, I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That was chauvinistic and sexist. I mean, you get the long gun. I will get another long gun. And, uh, problem solved, right? Problem solved. That would not have been the case in my first marriage. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Right. So the same is true. I, I can't sneak anything in the house. She knows what she's looking at. So. <laughs> um, and you have a daughter, correct? I have uh, a grown daughter, a daughter who's grown and gone. And then I have also a little daughter. I have a four-year-old that's still roaming around the house. Uh, I refer to her as the honey badger because she does not give an F. She is all out of F. She's just she was born without any. And she has an elder brother who's who's eight, and uh, he's the <laughs> often the recipient of the fact that she just don't care. Um, so it's pretty funny. I was watching them one time. They were just talking to each other, and, and I've always had a rule raising all of my kids that if what you've done is so funny I can't keep a straight face, you don't get in trouble for it. Okay? Because I think the world needs more humor. So <laughs> if 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 what you've done may be wrong, but I'm laughing about it. And we've all, as parents, we've all had it. You've probably already had it with six months where they do something that just can't be allowed, but it's really funny. Um, so they're talking one day and, and it's very calm from, I couldn't hear what they were saying. But it was very calm interplay going back and forth. And she just hauls off and punches him in the throat. And I don't mean on the side of the neck on the chin. I mean, right in the trachea. Just wow. Oh. Now she's four, right? So it's not like you punching me in the throat. Um, but you know, of course he's like uh, appalled. Oh my God. And he looks at me and, and now I've got two opposing philosophies colliding, right? I've got the, I can't have you punching your brother in the throat philosophy and the damn, that's funny philosophy. <laughs> and then just as, as, as a sort of a amicus brief on the side is I want a strong daughter who can, you know, take care of herself. Doesn't need a man to protect her all the time. <laughs> So that was that was a, a parenting conundrum, to say the least. Uh, I, I hope I successfully navigated through it. Because also my son felt like a victim, right? He wants, he wants representation here. Dad, <laughs> oh, man. But it was funny. Because she just went from the completely relaxed stance to wham, just popped him right in the throat. Where did you learn that? I mean, <laughs> I learned it from watching you, Dad. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought, right? It was like she dropped an F bomb at the grocery store. I'm like, oh, probably me. Um, but she punched. I'm like, your mother's never punched me in the throat. I'm not sure where that came from. So I put it down to daycare. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> That might be the funniest moment that has ever happened on this podcast. <laughs> it was pretty funny to see, though. I got to be honest, because on the one hand, you're like, oh, on the other hand, you're like, that's my girl. Yeah, I'm crap off of anybody. <laughs> Everybody wants to raise strong, independent women. But I will tell you, the act of raising strong, independent women is a real pain. <laughs> it's a real pain. Oh, man. 
Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So with your background with, you know, military, law enforcement, um, you know, firearms instruction, of course, you know, uh, I think the, the one question that other fathers would have is uh, what what advice can you give to other fathers about, yeah. you know, storing firearms and, you know, maybe kind of introducing your kids to firearms? Wow, that, that is some deep water. And I, I shudder to dive into that. Um, I, I try very hard not to be dogmatic and try not to tell other people how to live their lives because, you know, frankly, I don't think it's my business and I don't want people doing it to me. I can, and I'm happy to tell you what I did. You know, and I, I have a daughter who's an adult, lives on her own up in D.C., successful, does her own thing. Uh, and I have, obviously, I'm dealing with the question you just posed right now. And I, I came at it from... Okay, what I, I have guns in the house. They're not going away. Okay, the guns are going to be here. And at the time I was raising my eldest daughter, it was a tool of my trade, right? Professionally, I was required to have certain firearms in my house, and I had them. On top of that, it's it's also my hobby and my pastime. I guess the, the common phrase now, it's my passion. Um, but, you know, say what you will, there, there are guns about. Uh, if your camera panned larger, you would see that my office is decorated with them. Japanese Arasaka that my grandfather brought back from World War II, uh, an M1 Garand, an M14, a musket made in, geez, I don't know when that was made, 1780, something like that. Oh, wow. Uh, that, that's just the ones that are decorations. There are others here and there. And of course, my wife has guns. <clears throat> so to me, there was two sort of places to start from. You can start from the never let them see the gun, hide all the guns, don't touch the guns, they're invisible to the kids, they don't know they exist, you're not allowed to touch them, you can't see them, don't even think the word gun. Or there is saturation. You know, make the guns so boring. Because what gets kids hurt with guns is curiosity, right? So yeah. erase the curiosity. And I thought, you know what? To me, that seems safer. Because if they're at all curious and kids are just they're kids right they're small human beings they're not angels sent upon us from heaven they're just inquisitive little people with no experience i don't know that i can hide a gun well enough to keep my kids from finding a gun <laughs> so i said what i'd rather have is the kid look at the gun and go man it's just like the ottoman or the chair or the front door it's just there it's no big deal so i when my kids hit kindergarten i give them give them a gun and in the case of my eldest daughter it was a Jennings J22 that a friend of mine was carrying as an undercover gun. And I was like, dude, you can't do that. You got to sell me that gun. Why? Is it a really good gun? You really want it? I said, no, it's a boat anchor and you shouldn't ever carry it anywhere where you might have to use it on a hostile person. Oh, you just don't like it because it's a 22. I said, no, I don't like it because it doesn't function. That's why I don't like it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So sell me the gun and take the money that I give you and go buy a better gun. Oh, okay. And he eventually did. So then I gave that gun to my, my child. I said, look, this is your gun. And I think I've got a Raven P25 that I bought in college back in 1983 or something, right? Same deal. <laughs> um, okay. I didn't always know anything about guns, right? Everybody's ignorant at some time. <laughs> uh, but I still have it because I just don't tend to sell my guns. And I said, this is your gun. You ever want to see your gun, touch your gun, whatever I'm doing, you tell me, Dad, can I see my gun? And I will stop what I'm doing, and I will show you your gun. 
And my eldest daughter on two separate occasions when she was probably six or seven said, dad, can I see my gun? Very random out of the blue, out of nowhere. And I was as good as my word. One time I was on the phone. Hey buddy, I got to call you back. Hung up the phone. Absolutely, honey. Went and got the gun, cleared it. And then we went over nomenclature. We went over safe gun handling procedures. It was a thing, you know, sat on the floor with her and, and we went over it, you know, taught her all the parts and pieces and what not to touch and, you know, muzzle control, trigger control. And uh, after doing that a couple of times, she didn't have a lot of curiosity, but then she went with me to several IDPA matches and, you know, she's out there shagging brass and taping targets. And uh, <clears throat> by the time she's 13 or so, 14 or so, she, you know, kind of got into girl stuff and guns were kind of behind her. But I will distinctly remember one time she walks into the kitchen. I'm talking to a buddy of mine who's a cop and she's got one of my 1911s it's cocked and locked and she's got it pointed towards the deck, finger off the trigger, you know, fingers in index on the side of the receiver, pointing at the floor, walks into his dad, you left this sitting in the, on the counter in my bathroom, put it down <laughs> on the table, pointing in the safe direction, walked off, gave me the eye roll, the teenage girl eye roll and walked away. I'm like, you know what, whether she ever gets into guns and shoots with me or not, this is a win. And I told her, Hey, next time kid, just, you know, if I'm home, call me and I'll come and get, it. okay, dad, whatever. <laughs> next time, don't leave your gun on my bathroom. <laughs> it's my bathroom, but okay, whatever. Um, but, he, but there was no curiosity there. Now, I can control who comes into my house with these kids until a certain date, right? At some point, it's not going to be them I have to worry about. It's all their knucklehead buddies that I got to worry about. And that's why I have gun safes to put my stuff in. And that's why things get locked up. Not because I'm worried about my kids touching the guns and monkeying with them. I'm not. But <clears throat> I, I, I'm fortunate enough to live in a suburban neighborhood, Um boundaries aren't real huge with a lot of these kids right i mean probably the same way you grew up everybody you're we're going to lunch at whoever's house we're happen to be playing near at lunchtime right so it's not unusual for yeah. all of a sudden half a dozen eight-year-olds come flooding into my house and i got to throw peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at them or whatever which is great right that's kind of what you want to do as a parent but now i've got a half a dozen eight-year-olds that i don't know what their level of comfort around firearms is and so i have the only safe thing in my mind to do is assume they're all completely freaking ignorant. And if they see a gun, they're going to set it off. And so then I have to kind of address my readiness posture appropriately. So for me, I tend to have my guns tend to be locked up or up above sight lines where they can't get to and ammunition separated, slide forward, hammer down. Um, <clears throat> if they're not in a safe and if if they're loaded and ready to go, they're on my person. So that's my approach. Um, I don't know that that's everyone's approach. I don't know that, that works for everybody, but that's kind of the way I come at it. I just appreciate that, you know, uh, appreciate the honesty. I, um, I think that really helped out some folks that, you know, because that's a question that I get a lot, you know, like, man, I, we got this kid on the way and I don't know what to do with all my guns. And it's like, well, you know, it's probably going to be a while before it really becomes a problem. Right. Right. But, like my four-year-old. Yeah. When my kids were younger, I would always kind of test them once or twice a year. I, I, you know, take the gun apart, clear it, make sure everything was good to go, put the hammer forward <clears throat> on a Glock, right? I'd slide forward, hammer down, put a dummy mag in it and say, can you rack this? Try to pull that slide back. And then watch them violate every gun safety measure ever. Um, 
trying to get the slide back, but they just lack the physical dexterity and strength to get it done. I'm like, yeah, you want to use the furniture use the furniture. You know, you want to, you want to build an A-frame with a pulley system and get four fat dudes in a Clydesdale in here. Hey, knock yourself out, whatever you can orchestrate, <laughs> see if you can work that slide. And the first time they, they get it halfway done, I'm like, okay, now I got to change my posture again because now they, they have the, the capability. Even if it's just halfway, I'm like, if you can get halfway, you know, the stars align, the wrong way and you're, you're racking around. So, yeah. <clears throat> uh, and again, I, I'm not saying that's the right thing for everybody. And the other thing you got to measure is maturity, right? Yeah. Your six-year-old son may be infinitely more mature than my six-year-old son. You know, your six-year-old son may be better equipped, better trained, better able to deal with this firearm appropriately than mine. You know, just because mine's, you know, a thumb sucking knucklehead and yours isn't. Right. I mean, and who best to make those decisions, but the parent. So that's, again, back to what I was saying originally. I, I don't know that I'm the right guy to say Memphis, this is what you've got to do with your kid. Or, and, and frankly, if I did that, the first thing you're going to do is go, well, you're talking to. Yeah. <laughs> my kid, my gun, you don't think I can do that? Because um, that's how people are around guns, especially men. We get very, very. I, I, I laugh. I tell my students all the time. There's three things that men always believe they can do without any training. That's drive fast, shoot guns, and make love. And they think that we don't, I don't need any schooling. You know, I say, well, I'm going to teach you to play the piano. Like, oh, I got, I got to learn to play the piano. I'm going to fly a plane. Oh, I got to learn to fly a plane and drive fast. Oh, I got this. Right? <laughs> I got I'm going to tell you how to secure your firearm. Nah, nah, I got that. It's easy. I just do this. That's what my dad taught me. It's my grandpa taught me. He was, my grandpa's brother was a cop. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the best I can do is put it out there, pick and choose what works best for you. Yeah. Yeah. Those are wise words. I, and I appreciate your, your perspective on that. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So let's see, we're running up on, you know, 49 minutes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the prep projects that you're working on right now? Like what can we expect in the future from, from TC Fuller? Well, the books that we discussed, um, I'm hopeful that we'll see some some uh, awards actually land next year in addition to the ones I've already pulled in. That'll be nice. Um, very validating, right? Because you never know, right? You throw a book out in the street for public consumption. You don't know if you know people are using it to level their coffee table or if they're actually reading it. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that takes place. Uh, the books they said that were going to come out are, they're lined up and ready to rock. Uh, I run the Horace Group at thehorsegroup.net. <clears throat> We're a bespoke training facility, training company. Uh, I do some high-end uh, executive protection work. So I was out in Las Vegas here last week doing some uh, executive protection stuff. Uh, I'm fortunate that I can be very choosy about who I work with and when I work with them. So uh, that's nice. I also do high-end bespoke training. And I mentioned it earlier on. Uh, I, I did some of that last month. I think I've got another one lined up next month. But I don't really enjoy teaching on a, a line with 20 or 30 people and a couple of uh, ROs helping me out to watch the line. Cause I've, I've had more guns pointed at me on firing lines uh, in the five years I taught at the FBI Academy and the six or seven years I taught at the Vermont police Academy than I ever had pointed at me by bad guys on the street. <laughs> uh, it's just, and if you've been teaching more than six months, you've seen it as well. Uh, yeah. so what I do now is I cap my classes off at four people and typically my classes run two people. I charge a premium rate. Uh, I, I 
target my target demographic is high net worth people, you know, folks that are existing in a little bit higher socioeconomic category than I enjoy, perhaps. And I do bespoke training. So I sit down with you. If you were going to be my client, uh, you said, hey, I'm interested in having this. I would, first thing I do is I tell them the price up front, because if that's going to be a sticking point, I'd rather not waste your time or mine. And then I'll make recommendations in the price category you're looking for. Typically, the people that come to me, it's not. Uh, makes me think I should raise my rates, frankly. And then uh, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll meet with them if they're local. Uh, if they're not, uh, I'll do a Zoom meeting and we'll we'll talk. And we'll just kind of, what do you think you need? Where do you think you are in this firearms uh, process? And then what do you really need? And uh, what I find is if I'm teaching on a line with 10, 20, 30 people, everybody's a sniper from, you know, Fallujah. And they all have, you know, it's like every Marine you ever want to meet has always been force recon. Really? Do they have a band in the Marine Corps? You guys have any mechanics, you know, you have <laughs> truck drivers. No, everybody's a force recon. Okay, cool. Um, you have a lot of truck drivers. <laughs> right. Yeah, nobody wants to admit to being a truck driver after they're out, right? Uh, so if I get a line of 30 people, that's what I've got. I've got a bunch of people who claim to be you know, Delta SEAL team ninja force operators. Uh, but if I sit down with them one-on-one, -on -one, I, I tend to get a much more accurate picture of, of really where they are in this process. And, I also find that when you're charging someone several thousand dollars for two days of training, uh, you tend to get their attention, right? There's a lot more buy-in and I don't have a big process of establishing bona fides. And I don't have a big process of having to say, look, this is what I know. And this is what I can teach you. Cause I send them my CV before the class is ever contracted before we ever sign a contract, you know who I am. And I, there's a reason you came to me and no, I wasn't in Fallujah. You know, yes, I have combat time, but <clears throat> what I'm going to be able to do is is show you how to carry a firearm concealed and use it socially if push comes to shove in the United States, right? Because shooting like you're kicking a door in Fallujah is cool in Iowa, but it really doesn't have as much to do with your reality as being able to carry a concealed firearm and use a public restroom, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's yeah. probably more of a conflict that you're going to run into. And how to, you know, carry a firearm and use it socially and not find yourself in prison for the rest of your life. Um, these are areas where I can, I can help people out. And I do. So that's sort of the, the, the rarefied air that I target for my training. And it, it's great. I, uh, I get really motivated, really interesting people. And then of course I sign NDAs all the time that say, I, I won't use your picture or your name in my advertising, you know, so I just don't disclose who's come to my training because a lot of them you know if you're if you're slam dunking hoops or you're scoring touchdowns or you're hitting home runs you don't necessarily want everybody in the world to know that you're armed and you're carrying concealed because they're their social communities that they tend to live in frown on that sort of thing yeah so <clears throat> you, know, you come to me for a little more privacy a little more of a, a targeted approach and uh, part of what you're paying for is is that concept that your, your, your privacy will be assured on my end. So <clears throat> I do it enough that I, you know, keeps me in kibble and uh, I plan to continue to doing that, continue to do that. So those are sort of the things that are on the, on the horizon. I'm trying to do a little bit more research. I'm helping Dan out with uh, a research project he's working on. We're helping pull research data out of a project he's working on. It's probably a better way to put it. Uh, so, you know, I got my stubby little fingers in a lot of different pies. Yeah. 
and I'm excited for that research. Yeah. Um, so if some of our listeners or our viewers, if they want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Um, are you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on, on social media. I, uh, I'm still available on Facebook. I guess my, my daughter tells me all the time that that's an old man's thing. And I'm like, well, hello. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've got enough gray in my beard to buy entry. So you can find me on, uh, on Facebook. I'm, I'm a little slow about it simply because I try to vet things because if you're on Facebook at all, now you're getting hammered by, you know, people that are, you know, spam accounts. So I try to try to filter through as much of those as I can. Uh, you can also find me through, uh, <clears throat> the horse group.net. And of course you can find my books on, well, right now it's just one book. You can find that on painting over rust.com or you know, the easiest way is just to go to Amazon. Pinningoverrust.com, Amazon. Excellent. Excellent. All righty. I own tcfuller.com. I just haven't built the website yet. And I'm, frankly, I'm just too cheap to pay somebody to build my websites. I've, I've built all my own. So I just I'm in the same boat. <laughs> you just got to sit down and do it, right? Yeah. So tell you what, TC, man, this hour just flew by. It did. And my face hurts from laughing. <laughs> this was incredibly enjoyable. I'm just so honored that you would come on and, you know, you would you would share your story with us. Memphis, thank you, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. And I, I really appreciate your, your taking the time to have me on your show. Right on. And um, uh, folks, if you're listening or if you're watching, I just want to I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us. I want to let you know how much we appreciate it. Um, you could have spent your time doing anything. Uh, you know, making extra cash or spending time with your family and you're spending some of that time with us. And we just want to let you know how much we appreciate it. Thanks a bunch for coming and welcome to Memphis.